Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. Opera has a bad rap. It's stuffy and long and expensive. And at the end of the day, who really understands sung Italian anyway? Also, historically, it hasn't scored a lot of points on the woke scale. Look at Wagner and Madama Butterfly and all those dead sopranos piling up at the end of the drama. And yet, despite all this... There's something about opera that has always taunted me into wanting to understand it. I read Ann Patchett's wondrous novel, Bel Canto, a while ago, and the magic I felt afterwards made me want to give opera a chance. But I didn't even get as far as listening to one opera all the way through. I felt completely lost in hundreds of years of intimidating history and weird Italian musical terms I couldn't pronounce. And I still can't pronounce. So what's a modern gal to do? Well, call up the former classical music and opera critic for the New York Times, of course. Vivian Schweitzer, coincidentally, just wrote a book for people like me, A Mad Love, An Introduction to Opera. She joins us in the studio to teach me, and you, everything we need to know about opera to walk into our very first production. Thank you so much for coming to teach me how to love opera. Thank you for inviting me. I hope to persuade you. <laughs> so let's start with your own love of opera, because I'm hoping some of it will rub off on me. Um, when and why did you first fall for this genre? I didn't have particularly have so much as an aha moment. It was just it's always been a part of my life. I grew up uh, playing classical music. I'm a classical pianist, and I played a lot of chamber music. Both my mother and my grandmother were huge uh, Maria Callas fanatics, so we always had, you know, often had her recordings and other opera singers playing. So it was just something I think that was always a part of my life, um, and I just I just grew up loving the sound of the human voice and the operatic voice in particular. My mom loved Pavarotti, but that didn't help me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, opera has something of a reputation, yeah. which is what we're trying to dispel here. Um, definitely in the states of being mm -hmm. this. Um, very expensive, very exclusive art mm -hmm. form. But I was surprised to learn that for a huge period of time, it was really kind of this body affair. Yeah, I think that's correct. Opera can be expensive. And if you're at one of the the big formal opera houses, there sometimes is an element of formality um, that perhaps people who haven't gone to a lot of operas might not enjoy. 
Uh, but there are also a lot of opera houses now that are very different and very casual and have a different vibe. But as you say, opera used to be a very bawdy and kind of raucous affair. And the idea that people went and just sat quietly and listened to it and, you know, clapped in the right places was just simply didn't exist. People were playing chess and flirting and <laughs> perhaps doing dubious things behind the curtains and men bought their mistresses and they, you know, people were booing if they didn't like something and eating. I mean, it was just a real kind of carnival scene. Um, the idea that you go to a concert or an opera and sit there very politely came much, much later. Hmm. Do you feel like um, any technological innovations have really helped with breaking down the barrier to opera? Because, you know, a lot of it is sung in Italian. Yes. Or German or some other language mm-hmm. that many people don't speak. I think the introduction of the surtitles uh, was absolutely invaluable and one of the most fundamental things that really helped make opera more accessible. Even if you know an opera very well or you think you do, some of these plots are so complicated and so ludicrous that you just, even a conoscenti doesn't necessarily remember every single thing that's happening in the ring cycle because there are a zillion twists and turns. So I think the introduction of surtitles was hugely helpful in kind of opening up opera to a different audience and also allowing opera to be sung in its original language, which I think is one of the selling points of opera because these languages are very beautiful. But of course, you know, you want to have a general idea what they're singing about. But it would be strange to hear, you know, Edith Piaf sing in English or something would have been really odd because the sound of the French language is so integral to her. And I think it's the same with opera. Language is very important. Okay, so let's go to the first great opera, which you pinpoint and a lot of people would pinpoint as L'Orfeo by Mm -hmm. Claudia Monteverdi. So what set this work apart from previous operas and where does it fit in the evolution of this European musical tradition? Because it didn't come from nowhere. Right. Exactly. So opera definitely did not spring out of nowhere. There had been a long and fairly comprehensive uh, tradition of music in Europe in different spheres. So you had liturgical music, liturgical dramas, people singing monophonic chant in churches, various forms of musical entertainment, including the intermedi, which were these very lavish entertainments that were performed during the weddings of very famous people like the Medici. But what Monteverdi and his colleagues did was to create something that we call sung drama, which means that the entire play, for example, instead of having people recite their lines in speech with a little bit of musical interjections, it was sung the whole way through. And this sung drama eventually became known as opera. And what Monteverdi did was he did it in a way that somehow moved listeners, whereas his predecessors and colleagues had also created sung drama, but it just was kind of boring. So Monteverdi was basically the first guy that did it in a way that somehow moved people and it touched people and it brought them to tears. Okay, so this definition of opera as sung drama leads me to my next question, which is what's the difference between musical theater and opera? So that's a great question, and it's a question that is oft-debated, and there's definitely no correct answer. There are certainly musicals that are sung the whole way through as well, like Les Miserables. But there are a few key differences between opera and musical theater. The first is just the, the voice itself. Uh, music, in musical theater, they, the singers are invariably mic'd. 
um, their voices are amplified. And I don't know of any musicals where that's not the case. And that's the exact opposite in the opera world, where it's considered kind of scandalous to use amplification in a traditional theater. And it's all about the sound of the unamplified human voice, which is supposed to project, you know, into this vast theater. And also that's one of the the thrills of listening to opera. But there are definitely people who challenge these ideas. For example, the composer Stephen Sondheim has said that one of the main differences between opera and musical theater is just the expectations of the audience. So if you go to hear a performance and you think it's musical theater and it's presented in a musical theater venue, it's musical theater. Whereas if the same work is presented by an opera company in an opera house and it's targeting an opera audience, they will assume it's opera. So I thought that was kind of an interesting way of looking at it and also a way of looking at it that shows that there's not really a a definite answer to this. But I'd say it's mostly about the sound of the unamplified voice that's one of the main differentiators. Well, let's go ahead and listen to some of L'Orfeo, the first opera of note. And by the way, we're not going to identify each of the singers before playing these clips since we're going to cover a lot of music, but links to the individual performances can be found in the show notes. Okay, so what appeals to you about that piece? I think it's a very it's a very moving piece, and especially when you think about the context. Of course, it's mythological, but the idea of this person going down to Hades, where his beloved has unfortunately ended up, and he's desperately trying to get her back, and the only the only tool that he has is his voice, um, because of course the guardians of Hades are not you know that nice, <laughs> that empathetic. But he feels, and what happens is that he uses his voice to essentially convince them to let him take her back to Earth. So in Posente Spirito, um, which is one of the first important arias in opera, and it's preceded by a mournful chorus of trombones, Orfeo's lament is basically a plea to Uh, Caron, who's the ferryman of the dead, to let him enter the underworld so that he can rescue his beloved Eurydice. So you can kind of hear the emotional power of his voice in this context. Speaking of emotional power, one of opera's greatest gifts to music was the duet, which we find everywhere today. Yeah. I didn't know that I had to thank opera for Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me (laughs) or Ain't No Mountain High Enough, but I do. And Monteverdi wrote a mean duet. Mm -hmm. So here's the one you picked out for us. That sounds like a love song. Mm -hmm. It's definitely (laughs) a love song. (laughs) 
Bertimero in um, Incoronazione di Popea was certainly one of the earliest and now best known examples of ensemble singing in opera. And it highlights just how gorgeous it sounds when two voices intertwine. Um, I, I still think it's one of the most beautiful duets in the entire operatic canon. So where do we go from here after the birth of opera, after Monteverdi? What is the big innovation that happens next? So there are a couple of things that happen. Um, and first of all, opera used to be at its very, very beginnings, a very elitist entertainment. L'Orfeo was premiered in a royal court and it was premiered for very important people and royalty. And then fairly soon after that, and within Monteverdi's lifetime, it became a much more populist art form. And as we were talking about before, it also became a much more raucous art form, um, especially as some of these operas were performed during the Venice carnival season. So it was just a lot of debauchery oh, yeah. <laughs> and gen- general mayhem going on. So that was one important change. Um, and at the same time, there were also different styles springing up in different um, countries. So you had French Baroque opera, which was quite different in some ways from Italian Baroque opera. And then after that, one of the most important developments was what we call opera seria, uh, which is a form of Baroque opera, and it translates as serious opera, which sounds like it's something super boring. But the seriousness of it was actually referring to the subject matter, which was often mythological and had moral elements of people debating between right and wrong. And one of its most famous proponents uh, was the German composer Handel, who lived for a little bit in Italy and then eventually moved to London and composed what are now some of the best known Baroque operas like Alcina and uh, Giulio Cesare and operas like that. So let's hear how different that sounds. Okay, I know nothing about opera, and that <laughs> sounded different even to me. So what's going on? Right, so you can hear how different that sounds even just in the... And that's still in the beginnings of the of the operatic genre. And already you have a style of music that sounds completely different than a composer 50 to 100 years ago. So what you just heard was an example of a rage aria. And as that indicates, it's someone singing who is very angry about something. Um, A rage aria is also a da capo aria, which is a fundamental element of Baroque opera. And it's divided into essentially three parts, A, B, A. Da capo is an Italian word that means back to the beginning. So the A format is usually quite fast. And in the terms, in the case of a rage aria, the person singing sounds angry. And then there's a much more mellow middle section, which is the B section. And then the A section returns, uh, usually with some variation, maybe different ornamentation, for example. And what we just heard was an aria called Svegliatevi nel core, which translates as Awaken in my heart. And it's a rage aria from Handel's Giulio Cesare. And Sesto, who is the character 
singing is very upset because his father, uh, Pompeo, has been murdered. So he has reason to be upset. To be angry. <laughs> he has reason to be enraged, yeah. <laughs> so here's the next part of that, the change. So then it's like shifting back into the A part. At exactly. The end. Okay. Yeah. So the middle part, which is the more slow and introspective part, he's basically just mourning. And then when the A part returns, he's angry again. And that's the revenge and the rage coming out. And I think it's very interesting, too, how these composers just continued over the centuries to use the voice to convey all these different emotions. Um, and some elements stay the same. For example, Baroque opera is still sometimes melismatic, which is what we heard in Monteverdi's Posente Sperto. That's a technique that, say, Whitney Houston used when she sang that famous song, and I, I'm not going to try to sing it because I can't <laughs> sing, and I will always love you, and, you know, the famous, I, 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 yeah, um. yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, I mean, opera's with us everywhere, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, so can you talk about gender bending in Baroque opera? Yes. Because I did not really know about that. I kind of knew about, uh, just like in Shakespeare, some young boys playing women, but in fact, it goes the other way a lot of the times in opera. Yes. Um, the gender bending element of opera is very interesting and started just after Monteverdi's era because uh, women were not allowed to sing and to perform in public. What they used in the churches instead to have balance in a choir was young boys who'd been castrated, unfortunately, um, and were known as the castrati. And their voices never broke, and their voices were high, and therefore they essentially replaced women. Um, and in the Baroque operas, a lot of roles were sung by castrati. So whereas in contemporary culture, we might imagine a character who is a fierce warrior or a noble to have a kind of deep, manly-sounding voice. In early opera, it was, the, it was the opposite. A lot of these characters, for example, Giulio Cesare was portrayed by a castrato, had high, high voices because they were sung by men um, who hadn't gone through puberty. So it's just kind of a reversal, really, of what we associate with deep, yeah. traditional, I'm, you know, manly man. Um, it was a, a very different sound in opera. Yeah, no kidding. Well, what about trouser roles? And trouser roles are roles that are sung by women, but they're women portraying young boys. Um, so, for example, and we'll get to this later, Carabino in Mozart's Marriage of Figaro is a trouser role. Um, and a trouser role is usually sung by a mezzo-soprano, which is the voice type below a soprano. So the soprano is the highest voice, female voice type, and then the mezzo-soprano is slightly lower. Uh, and a lot of composers wrote roles for young boys uh, that are called trouser roles that were portrayed by young women impersonating men. Um, and sometimes this could get a little tricky. For example, in uh, Handel's Alcina, you have a lot of gender bending going on. So you have the knight Ruggiero, 
which was a role written for a castrated man and is now usually sung by a mezzo-soprano. And then Bradamante is a trouser role and a female role. Um, and she's often donning armor and dashing off to rescue Ruggiero. But what happens is that in a stage performance, we see these two women who are both dressed like men declaring their love for each other. And one is portraying a man and the other is portraying a female character who is impersonating her own brother. And neither of them recognize each other. And if this sounds super confusing, it is. <laughs> Sounds almost as confusing as the ring cycle. Yeah, it's 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 very confusing. Yeah. I mean, that sounds really postmodern in a lot of ways. But what's interesting about Baroque opera is that it was really abstract from what you've said and based on a lot of archetypes mm -hmm. and myths. And we don't really have any humans on the scene until sort of the next era. So who brought psychological complexity to opera. So that was Mozart. Um, so until Mozart's time, we'd had a lot of trips to the underworld and mythological gods and princes and beasts and what have you. Um, but Mozart uh, and his librettist uh, Lorenzo da Ponte were really the ones who kind of brought opera down to earth. And they had human characters, no more trips to the underworld and crazy things like that happening. So what Mozart did was introduce a level of psychological complexity to his characters that was had previously not been introduced. So he had characters who really were experiencing more, say, than just rage and happiness. There were a thousand different degrees in between, and partly because they were much more human stories. So he illustrated with his music the very complexities of human nature, which is, of course, never simple. Okay, so I think we should have a technical interlude and mm -hmm. talk about the voice types, because Mozart did employ a lot of very high yes. and then very <laughs> low um, segments. So in opera, there really is a kind of typecasting, but it's really voice casting people cast in certain roles based on how their voice sounds. So what does that look like? So in opera, you basically have voices categorized by their range. You have, for women, you have sopranos, which are the highest voice type. And they are often the ones who sing in a Mozart opera, for example, they might sing the young girls. But a soprano with a different um, timbre and quality to her voice would be cast in, say, she could be cast as an older woman or somebody like the Countess in Marriage of Figaro. You then have the next voice type in the female range is the mezzo-soprano, uh, which, as we discussed, sings the trouser roles. And then under that, uh, which is somewhat more rare, you have a voice type called the alto, which is the lowest female voice type. And then male voices, you have the tenor, who later on would be cast as the romantic hero. And then you have the baritone below that. And then you have the bass baritone below that. And Mozart used this wide spectrum of vocal types in really imaginative ways. For example, in the Queen of the Night aria in Mozart's Magic Flute, he took the soprano voice up to this crazy high. She sounds completely insane. And then in the same opera, he has Sarastro, the priest, singing in this really kind of gravelly low that's so low you can't even really imagine how the, the bass is singing that low. But he does it for a really, really amazing dramatic effect. Yeah. Okay, so let's hear some of those highs and lows. <laughs> 
Good lord. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and then the very low lows. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it is. And he, he used the range of the voice, as I said, for real dramatic effect. So the queen of the night aria, she is absolutely enraged and she's urging her daughter, Pamina, to kill Zoroastro. She just sounds so fabulously wildly outraged. Whereas the low voice for Zoroastro the priest, he sounds very decorous and somber and you know, priestly. So does that become like a centerpiece of an opera for some fans? Is that what they look for? Those really, really high notes and those really, really low notes? There's, there's definitely an element of that because in some levels, singing opera is a very athletic. It's an incredibly athletic thing to do. And hitting these high notes or these insanely low notes is kind of the equivalent of a you know someone making the shot in whatever sport they're doing. So there are definitely fans who go, who say, for example, will know the magic flute very, very well. And they will be excited about this aria because it's one of the famous ones. And it's always part of the excitement is to see and hear how the soprano sings it and can she nail all these crazy high notes. And that's definitely one element of um, opera going, which became even more important in the later genres of um um, 19th century opera such as Bel Canto. I do want to talk about Bel Canto, but first I want to ask, does a missed note ruin the whole opera? It certainly doesn't for me. I mean, opera singers, after all, are human and <laughs> everyone is occasionally going to miss a note or hit a wrong note or fall off the balance beam. These things happen. Uh, I think it is certainly very exciting when somebody does nail all the high notes and will hold a note for a really long time. And there is a certain visceral thrill to that. In the same way, there's a you know a visceral thrill to watching the Olympic skater do her triple axel, and it's amazing, right? You know, and if the sing if the skater falls, I feel kind of bad for her, and it's the same with singing. You feel kind of ba- I feel kind of bad for the singer if they miss it, but there's certainly a real thrill when something's nailed like that, and that's certainly the athletic element of opera, right? And nowhere is that athleticism more at play than in those famous high seas that even I have heard of, which exactly Pavarotti was known for. Yes, Pavarotti was nicknamed King of the High Seas because he uh, often sang what what we call bel canto opera. And there was one aria in particular that he was quite well known for singing from uh, one of Donizetti's comedies called La Fille du Regiment, which is called the translates as the daughter of the regiment. And the love-struck Tonio, who's one of the characters in the opera, sings Nine High Seas. Um, and Pavarotti often sang this opera and was much admired for it. <laughs> okay. Let's listen to it. This is not Pavarotti singing, right? No. So this is a young tenor called Lawrence Brownlee. a long time to hold a note. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to take a short break and then we'll be back to talk all about Bel Canto. Stay with us. 
So, Bel Canto, one of the few words I know from the opera repertory because <laughs> it was the title of a novel that yep. I read. Um, so, what is Bel Canto? So, Bel Canto has several um, meanings. Literally translated, it just means beautiful singing. Um, and it's also used to refer to a genre of early 19th century Italian opera written by composers such as Bellini and Rossini and Donizetti. And one of the most important elements of bel canto singing is these long lyrical lines. So it's not choppy, but the singer kind of ideally spins out this really, 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 really long, beautiful, unbroken phrase that may also be punctuated by all this elaborate ornamentation, which is also supposed to be very smooth. So it's a very difficult style of singing to perform. Let's hear some. That sounds really different. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Where did that come from? So that is um, a very famous aria called uh, Casta Diva from Bellini's Norma. Um, and it's a basically a prayer to the moon for peace. I mean, I can see what you're talking about with it taking a lot of control because it sounds almost like they're not going for it, I guess, mm -hmm. as aggressively as some of the other things we've heard. It seems very contained. Right. It's like the singer just has this incredible breath control. Right. Yeah. It's like you start a sentence. Imagine if you were speaking and you don't take a breath, but you can continue speaking without losing control. If you try to do that, you start right. you start gasping for breath. But a really good bel canto singer will be able to start singing a phrase and they just it just seems to keep on going which is one of the one of the skills and one of the things that makes it so beautiful to listen to. We talked about duets earlier, but there were also composers like Mozart who loved to combine four, five, six, a million different voices. And there's some really pretty ensemble singing in the bel canto style too, right? The bel canto singers used the combination of voices beautifully. So there is a beautiful quartet in Lucia di Lammermoor, for example, and then composers continued that later on. So, for example, Verdi wrote some really, really gorgeous ensemble singing where you have four or five voices singing together. And unlike if you listen to a spoken voice and people are all talking at the same time, it sounds super irritating, like a cable news show. When four voices are singing together, even if they're expressing completely different thoughts, they're singing different lines, it sounds absolutely gorgeous. Um, and the writer Victor Hugo was one of the um, artists who admired the way that composers could use um, this advantage over spoken drama. And he's, he mused that if he could only make four characters in his plays speak at the same time and have the same effect, you know, he'd, he'd be very happy. Okay, let's hear it. Um, what are we going to listen to? Uh, so this is um, a quartet from Verdi's Rigoletto. Thank you. 
But they're all reacting to the same thing. Exactly. So they're all reacting to the same thing. But when people in opera react to the same thing with different emotions and feelings, it just sounds it sounds pretty nice. Yeah, it does. (laughs) So let's talk about another big one. We have bel canto, but we also have sort of the next stage. We have Wagner. Um, He gets a lot of attention for the ring cycle Mm -hmm. and rightly so. But um, I had no idea that he was really all about sensuality in another one of his operas Tristan and Isolde Mm -hmm. Um, and I really loved this quote from Clara Schumann in your book she wrote about it and she said that she was disgusted to quote see and hear such crazy lovemaking the whole evening in which every feeling of decency is violated (laughs) tell me more that sounds great (laughs) (laughs) right so Tristan uh, when you listen to Wagner, it sounds, again, if you compare it to Monteverdi and then to Mozart and then to bel canto such as Norma, it sounds like a completely different genre. Uh, what Wagner did was basically shake everything up. He changed the style of writing of music. He wrote his own librettos and eliminated the divide um, between what we know as recitative and aria. So if you listen to a Mozart opera, for example, there are a lot of the beautiful songs, and some of them you might recognize, which are known as the arias. Um, And in an aria, the singer is basically expressing their feelings, either about a love affair, in fact, often about a love affair, or about a death, or a longing. But not much is happening during the aria. They really are just expressing themselves. Then the recitative, uh, which is often shortened to the recit, is the more prosaic part of opera. And it's what in early opera sounds like the more talky part of opera. They're not quite speaking and they're not quite singing, but it's the part of opera that moves the plot along, so to speak. So in much opera before Wagner, you had this divide between the recitative, i.e. the talky part, and then the aria. And Wagner eliminated all of that into what he wanted to be a kind of unbroken flow of music. And he also had some very important innovations harmonically. And one of his most famous ones is what is known as the Tristan chord, which opens the opera Tristan and Isolde. And the Tristan chord, unlike its predecessors, which in the tonal system resolved properly, or as they were supposed to, the Tristan chord doesn't resolve until the very end of the opera. So it creates this feeling of kind of unease and slight anxiety and longing, which is propelled throughout the entire opera until there is this kind of amazing climax musical climax right at the end it seems like a really sneaky way both of these methods to get people to pay attention to like 50 (laughs) hours of music yes and there's a lot going on before that it's about a five hour opera but the end of the opera is just it is one of the most transcendent moments in all of opera because you've been uncomfortable because you have been uncomfortable (laughs) and I think Probably Clara Schumann was uncomfortable because she'd never heard music like this. And it is kind of, it does make you a little uncomfortable. And it is deeply sensual music. So it sounds like she was uncomfortable with it on many levels, as maybe a, a proper decorous listener would have been then. <laughs> well, we're not decorous. No. <laughs> so let's go ahead and listen to that infamous Tristan chord from the beginning of the prelude.
almost spooky. Right. It's kind of spooky and you don't know where it's going. It's not a neat and tidy conclusion. It kind of, you're sitting there thinking, what's, where is this going? The core just doesn't resolve. Um, and in traditional harmony, it does. Or in traditional harmony before Wagner. But what he does is create this, as you said, kind of spooky, uneasy, sensual feeling that you just don't know how it's going to end up. That's so good. I mean, speaking of discomfort, this is as good a time as any to bring up sort of the unsavory, difficult issues that you have to wrestle with, um, with Wagner and with a lot of opera, um, namely mm. Wagner's anti-Semitism. You've got operatic misogyny and sort of every element of the art form and then the racial stereotypes of a play like Madama Butterfly. I mean, how do you wrestle with that as an opera lover and a critic? And then how do modern stagings deal with that? It's a difficult question. I mean, Wagner was unquestionably one of the world's worst people. He was just a terrible person. He was anti-Semitic, and he treated people in his life terribly. He seemed to have very little to recommend him as a human being, unfortunately. And I think some people, you know, people do wrestle with that. I, um, My grandparents were German-Jewish refugees, and they moved, ended up in England. So there, I think there was a time I did feel slightly guilty about you know, should I be listening to this, the music of this terrible man? But somehow I think I, I personally just separate, just separate the things. I think there are so many artists who are awful people. I think if we eliminate all the art that was created by unpleasant people, we would be missing some pretty spectacular art. And I think the, for me, the music of Wagner is so wonderful that I, I just somehow separate the the man from the music, although it's always there in the background. You don't forget that this was written by a terrible person. So, I mean, how do contemporary opera singers, but more importantly, like opera directors and companies put something on uh, that's, I guess, self-aware or aware of those? I think that's a really interesting question. And I think it's a question that, of course, is relevant to a lot of art, which was written in an era where people had very different viewpoints that we would now rightfully consider unsavory and wrong. But they made art that reflected the kind of generally accepted mores and traditions and ideas at the time. An opera is certainly no different. Wagner was, of course, an extreme example. I mean, he just happened to be particularly awful. But I think directors now do have a lot of good ideas and inspiration about how to present these works in a way that make them relevant to us and also that highlight the problems that we're still having. I mean, for example, Wagner's opera Die Meistersinger, which is the Master Singers of Nuremberg, was one of Hitler's favorite operas. And it has a very, very xenophobic theme. And in the final monologue, the cobbler poet Hans Sachs warns of the threat of foreign ways, and he praises holy German art, etc. And unfortunately, that's not totally irrelevant to our current day. You know, we're living in a time now where there's a lot of xenophobia and dislike and distrust of foreigners. So the idea of, you know, somebody talking about the threat of foreign ways and extolling the virtues of the artwork and music of your homeland and nationalism. It's not, unfortunately, something that is as foreign to us as we might hope that it should be. So and there was a recent staging in Bayreuth, which I didn't see, but Sachs is depicted as Wagner himself, and he's speaking these words from the witness stand in the courtroom of the Nuremberg trials. 
And that production was actually directed by an Australian director called Barry Kosky, who was the first uh, Jewish director to work at the festival. So that's, you know, one interesting way to present a work that has kind of a horrible theme, but is unfortunately still relevant to us. Right. So what about the role of women in opera? Because they are very central to a lot of these dramas and often have the most beautiful vocal parts, but a lot of them die. Yes. Women in opera, unfortunately, frequently meet a grisly fate. This is definitely true. And strangely, has also continued to be an element of contemporary opera. But they certainly do hold the stage while they're alive. You know, so many of opera's most powerful roles are written for women. Uh, and interestingly, opera uh, back earlier in the day gave women a route to owning property and earning money that they would have never had outside the theater. I think it's also important to note that male operatic characters, while they might have a higher survival rate, are also pretty unpleasant themselves. And you have the kind of boring guy and then you have the crazy psycho and the evil king or you know whatever all these different characters are but it's not like the men are portrayed in this amazing rosy light and then all the women die so you mentioned how some contemporary opera seems to fall into some of these old traditions and i realize we're skipping a lot here but jumping forward from wagner How has the rest of the 20th century treated opera? What have we seen since Wagner that, I guess, has changed things? Or what are the big high points in contemporary opera? I think one of the most interesting elements of contemporary opera is its eclecticism. And it's like composers have kind of mined these four centuries of traditions and created things that are original and interesting, but written in a really, really wide range of voices. So if you think about contemporary opera as, for example, say, starting um, with Philip Glass's Satyagraha, so that was in the mid-70s. So if we look at it as a kind of 20, 50-year period from then, the range of styles from Philip Glass's Minimalism, for example, to a more uh, romantic-sounding opera like Bel Canto or Fellow Travelers or Moby Dick. And I, I don't mean romantic as in 19th century, but perhaps in a musical language that might sound more familiar. Or you have Messiaen's completely unique style of writing, which was inspired by bird calls he transcribed. And then just a lot of in things in between. You have the indie rock operas, which use amplification. And that's one example of where amplification is not shunned in the opera world. A lot of contemporary operas are using um, amplification in really interesting ways. And they might amplify the ensemble as well. Um, so it's a really interesting time in the opera world. So very eclectic. I feel like I know more about <laughs> opera than I ever thought I wanted to. Good. <laughs> um, so I guess next question, assuming we've succeeded and turned people into um, eager opera seekers, what's the best way to get an experience of opera, assuming you come armed with sort of a basic mm-hmm. understanding of how it works? What next? I would definitely, as a first opera, recommend some of the most popular operas that are performed very regularly. I think there's a reason that things like The Magic Flute, La Traviata, Rigoletto, Aida, these operas are performed 
more than any other operas is because they are the most accessible. It's The music is beautiful. The plots are, by operatic standards, reasonably straightforward. So you're not going to be sitting there thinking, what on earth is going on? Um, and they're they're fairly fast. I mean, La Boheme is a great story, and it's a story, Puccini's La Boheme. It's a story that everyone can relate to about starving artists and, you know, young love and struggling relationships. And the story is fairly fast. You know, they're not they're not really any moments that are just static, unlike in Tristan, for example, which I love. So you have to go in armed with the knowledge that there's going to be a fairly static act here or there, which I think maybe for you know, someone seeing their first opera is is harder than if you've seen it a lot. Whereas something like La Boheme, Traviato, Rigoletto, these operas, Tosca, those are definitely the ones I would recommend for someone seeing their very first opera. So should we, when walking into like our first production of Carmen, read the story first? Definitely read the story because even with the surtitles, you're not going to be staring at them the entire time. You know, your eyes are going to be kind of flickering between the stage and the surtitles. So I think it's absolutely invaluable to have a general idea about the plot and what's going on so that if you're, you know, you miss a few translations, it doesn't really matter. Um, And then listen to some of the music on YouTube or Spotify first and just get a sense for what it's like. And maybe have some moments that you're really excited to hear. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. Well, anything else? Do we need opera glasses? Um, usually not. I mean, if you're sitting in the very, very highest seats of the Met, they are would not go amiss. Um, most theaters are not quite that big. It's also important to note that outside of the traditional theaters, there are also a huge range of venues doing really fun and innovative productions that are nothing like a traditional theater. Uh, There might be no kind of traditional raised seating, everyone's sitting on the floor or on benches, so it somehow also feels more democratic. Um, So even if going to a traditional theater isn't your thing, uh, but although you should definitely give that a try, a lot of cities have small entrepreneurial opera companies that are doing very interesting productions, and they're very affordable, and they have really, really impressive range of young singers. So opera's not dead yet. Opera's definitely not dead. (laughs) People like to say it's dead. I think even in a Noel Coward play that I believe he wrote in 1930 or something, their character saying, you know, opera's not what it used to be. (laughs) And that's 100 years ago. So people have been prophesizing its demise for a long, long time, but it seems to be alive and well. I hope you feel prepared to march with confidence into your very first opera, I certainly do, and highly recommend Vivian Schweitzer's A Mad Love for all the operatic shenanigans and stories we couldn't fit into the episode, like Mozart's Beef with Monteverdi, and a rundown of all the operas we skipped. There were a lot. Vivian also created a Spotify playlist to accompany the book, which we've included on our episode page, along with an eclectic sampler of the world of contemporary opera. You'll have a lot to listen to before we come back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.